This is a legacy episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast, originally released as part of the Lesbian Talk Show podcast group. Some references may be obsolete. The show looks at lesbian-relevant themes in history and literature, has interviews and discussions about current historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past, and presents new original historical fiction for your enjoyment. Lillian Foderman's book, Surpassing the Love of Men, was one of two books I encountered in the 1980s that convinced me that there were treasures to be found in the history of women's same-sex love. The other one, of course, was Emma Donahue's Passions Between Women. In the introduction to her extensive study of romantic friendship, Foderman notes that it began as a study of Emily Dickinson's love poems and letters to Sue Gilbert, the woman who became her sister-in-law. Foderman may be exaggerating her reaction for the sake of a good academic sleuthing story when she says the following. Although Dickinson had written the most passionate and sensual pronouncement of love to Sue Gilbert in the 1850s, there was never any suggestion that she felt the need to be covert about her emotions. If I had really uncovered a lesbian relationship, why could I not find any evidence of the guilt and anxiety, the need to keep secrets from family and friends that I thought were inevitably associated with homosexuality before the days of gay liberation? Furthermore, she questions why Dickinson's editors and publishers, including individuals associated with her immediate family, took such pains to deny or excuse the romantic and erotic content of her poetry and letters, given that Dickinson herself had not seen any reason to conceal them. Now, I have issues with some of Foderman's assumptions and premises, not only in this starting position as she describes it, but in her projections of the emotional and erotic lives of 19th century women. But the historic analysis inspired by her questions about Emily Dickinson remains of immense value. And her conclusions illustrate a pattern that is repeated several times across Western history. She notes that in the 19th century, it was not unusual for a woman to seek in her romantic friendship the center of her life, quite apart from the demands of marriage and family, if not in lieu of them. When women's role in society began to change, however, when what women did needed to be taken more seriously because they were achieving some of the powers that would make them adult persons, society's view of romantic friendship changed. Love between women, relationships which were emotionally in no way different from the romantic friendships of earlier eras, became evil or morbid. It was not simply that men now saw the female sexual drive more realistically. Many of the relationships they condemned had little to do with sexual expression. It was rather that love between women, coupled with their emerging freedom, might conceivably bring about the overthrow of heterosexuality." End quote. Applied to Emily Dickinson, Lillian Foderman's conclusion was that the content of Emily's writings was consistent with the social norms for women's emotional relationships with other women during her lifetime, that it was not evidence of what we would understand as a lesbian relationship, and that the later literal erasure of the place of Susan Gilbert in her life was due to the societal shift in how women's romantic friendships were treated, and therefore in how those who were handling her legacy wanted to present her life. Once the possibility of women experiencing sexual desire for each other was recognized, due to the writings of the sexologists and the rising field of psychiatry, the serpent had entered the garden and women's romantic relationships throughout time were retrospectively suspected of expressing deviant sexuality. Not until the rise of gay liberation, says Foderman, were we free to embrace our own same-sex erotic desire without guilt and shame. 
But as for the reality of Dickinson's life, Foderman says, quote, these romantic friendships were love relationships in every sense except perhaps the genital, since women in centuries other than ours often internalized the view of females as having little sexual passion. Thus, they might kiss, fondle each other, sleep together, utter expressions of overwhelming love and promises of eternal faithfulness, and yet see their passions as nothing more than effusions of the spirit." End quote. Well, if you want to know my issues with that interpretation, read the summary and analysis of Surpassing the Love of Men in the Lesbian Historic Motif Project blog. But this show isn't about me, or about Lillian Foderman's book, but about Emily Dickinson. And about the recent movie, Wild Nights with Emily, that very decidedly takes a position on Dickinson's sexuality that does not involve, quote, having little sexual passion, unquote. The movie takes its title from the following poem she wrote around 1861. Wild nights, wild nights, were I with thee, wild nights should be our luxury. Futile the winds to a heart import, done with the compass, done with the chart. Rowing in Eden, ah, the sea, might I but moor tonight in thee. The homoerotic content of Emily Dickinson's work, and by extension her life, has been a subject of debate from the start, with shifting sides depending on whether one viewed the topic as casting aspersions on that life or exploring its richness, and on whether one were a Dickinson fan or detractor. Emily and Susan met in their late teens in Amherst, Massachusetts, where the Dickinsons were prominent among the social and intellectual elite of the town. Both women had literary pursuits throughout their lives, and at the very least were each other's mentors and supporters in that field. They lived in an atmosphere where devoted romantic relationships between women were normalized and valorized. Emily spent a year at Mount Holyoke's Women's College, famous for romantic pairings among both students and faculty. The women's colleges of New England in the mid to late 19th century were so famous for relationships of this sort that the term Wellesley marriage competed with Boston marriage to identify committed female couples. The correspondence that survives between Emily and Susan is full of not only romantic but sensual longing for each other's presence. In 1852, when Susan was away teaching in Baltimore, Emily wrote, Susie, Will you indeed come home next Saturday and be my own again and kiss me? I hope for you so much and feel so eager for you, feel that I cannot wait, feel that now I must have you, that the expectation once more to see your face again makes me feel hot and feverish and my heart beats so fast. My darling, so near I seem to you that I disdain this pen and wait for a warmer language. Posterity has argued from opposite sides that this was purely conventional sentimental language that shouldn't be taken literally, and that such language is unambiguous evidence of physical erotic desire, and most likely a physical relationship between the two women. The year after that letter was written, Susan became engaged to Emily's brother Austin. Once again, this simple fact has been interpreted from opposite poles. The heteronormalists argue that any marriage to a man negates all the potential evidence of same-sex desire. In similar circumstances for other women, it has been argued that any affection expressed from one woman to another was actually a coded secret message intended to be passed on to a related man. From the opposite pole, it is pointed out that women had a limited set of strategies for ensuring proximity and access to each other. If they were not of a social class and living in an era when it was possible to live independent economic lives, 
then creating a bond via a male relative produced some degree of stability. I'm reminded of how actress Charlotte Cushman arranged for her lover Emma Crow to marry Cushman's nephew to create a similar recognized bond. Susan and Austin's marriage does not appear to have been particularly successful, despite three children. Austin entered a long-term relationship with Mabel Loomis Todd, the wife of one of his employees. After Emily's death, there was something of a feud between Todd and the Dickinsons over who would manage the publication of Emily's poetry and curate her legacy. Todd published an edited selection of poems that were within her control in 1880. Martha Dickinson Bianchi, Susan and Austin's daughter, published other editions based on the material within her control. Not until 1955 was a comprehensive collection published, restored to Emily's distinctive formatting and ordered in roughly chronological sequence. This is the background of the story told in Wild Nights with Emily. The mythologizing of Emily Dickinson as an eccentric recluse, scribbling away at poems unknown to the rest of the world until after her death, is challenged as being a deliberate fictional creation of Mabel Todd. The film tackles its topic with wit, creativity, and satire. I invited my friend Tristan L. Bass from the historic movie website Frockflix to join me to give our impressions of the film, along with a few remarks about other cinematic interpretations of Emily Dickinson's life. I am here with Tristan Elbaz of Frockflix. This is our second time recording a movie review together. And, uh, you know, they say once is coincidence, twice is tradition, and three times is an ancient and honorable tradition whose origins are lost in the mists of antiquity. So we're probably going to get there because we were just chatting about how we desperately need for me to watch Gentleman Jack so we could talk about it. Definitely. We're well on our way. So, um, and I've been... Uh, recapping Gentleman Jack on frockflix.com. Um, so, yeah, yeah, you gotta, you gotta watch that one, too, so we can talk yes. about it in, in full. But today... Today we are here to talk about Wild Nights with Emily, the most recent... I almost don't want to call it a biopic. The most recent movie about Emily Dickinson. Fair. And um, I have to say, I loved this film. I mean, I just... I hooted, I hollered, I, I, I didn't quite pee my pants laughing, but it, it was fabulous. And I will talk about some of the things I liked about it in detail, but so how about you? I, I definitely, I cackled loudly in the theater. I can tell you what exact point that made me laugh the most. Um, uh, was it the one about uh, women not getting involved in politics or something like that? No, no it was the it was the musical version of "Because I Could Not Stop oh, yes, the Death," yes. which is my favorite Emily Dickinson poem. Actually, it's, that's tied with uh, "After Great Pain of Formal Fiddling Comes." Um, but to see that to put to music was just I was dying. It was, it was <laughs> oh my god! I so mean, we we, well, yes. we can put that in context, yes, you know, for for the listeners. Um, um, but it was, yeah, it was a funny movie. Uh, it was uh, unexpected. It was unpredictable, which, you know, for a biopic or any biographical type film is always exciting because, mm -hmm. you know, usually you go in, oh, I know about this person, you know, it's yeah. going to be this and this and this. And, you know, how are they going to do this and this and this? Or how is the, you know, so this such and such actor going to perform or embody this person or or whatever. And and this film was it was irreverent, it was satirical, it clearly had an agenda and it was unapologetic about that which you know 
if I think a movie has an agenda and is trying to slip it in sideways, it's like, eh, I don't know. But but this one was like really in your face. It's like, we're going to talk about some things about Emily Dickinson's legend and how it got to be that way. And, and we have issues. <laughs> Very much so. Uh, I will say that I was a little less enthusiastic because of the incredibly low production values, um, the just absolutely shit costumes. <laughs> I mean, the um, the director did say she was inspired by drunk history, and um, in one of the costume does- designers had done some episodes of drunk history, and yeah, that's the aesthetic, and. I, yeah, I am. I'm judgy on that count. That's what I do. Yeah, that's that. I built an online publishing empire about around judging costumes in historical um, films, and so um, that took away from my enjoyment because it was just so atrociously bad. Like, and comedic, sometimes comedically so, and sometimes just like this is ugly. <laughs> like, mm. this is just like. Oh, this is just so shitty. It's ta- it's taking me out of the moment. One of the things, if I'm, I, I need a little bit more. Like one of the things that's great about drunk history is that it's so over the top from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. that you know it's full on just a comedy. This movie was. I mean, there were some serious points, obviously. Yeah. You know, and they and there some of the like poetry. In in fact, was very serious and very beautiful mm-hmm. and very lyrical. Um, so there were, it was, it, sometimes I felt like the tone wasn't sure where it wanted to be. It was a little uneven in that spec. And the costume, yeah, it was, it and was the co- costuming and the production values in general lent to that. Yeah, the, well, I felt that it had, I don't want to say a consistent tone, but a unified tone because it was trying to combine both the, the intense emotional beauty of poetry and la la la. I mean, so so like the scene in the grave when when it's it's Emily's death scene and there's uh, use, using her poem, um, I died for beauty, um, and then juxtaposing her, you know, in in the grave with a black soldier from the Civil War right. who is doing the uh, the part of the poem about I died for truth, and and it all becomes grand and unified, right. and and that right. you know it is simultaneously. A little ridiculous around the edges, and very beautiful and poetic. But then the film does these deliberate, like, like the breaking of the fourth wall in the scene. There's a scene where, where the voiceover of Mrs. Todd, Mabel Todd, is is going on about how well, of course, Emily did admire, you know, her her male suitors. And there's this episode with her and the elderly judge. Um, and, and there, there's a point at the end where, where Todd has this voiceover about, you know, um, I, I forget the, the line, but anyway, basically it's like, you know, yes, she, she certainly, you know, had admiration for him. And, and the, the actress playing Emily, you know, turns directly to the audience and basically rolls her eyes. Yes in a brain-spraining fashion. And there were a couple points like that where where it's, it's breaking the fourth wall, it's the turning to the audience and right. letting us in on the joke. Right. And so you're right that it's, if you're looking for complete consistency of tone, you know, there, there's this jar there. But I sort of took it as a, just a very playful, you know, I love this story and I'm gonna have fun with it. 
that's fair. It, it's, um, I think, pro- again, I was probably put off most by the production value. Yeah, it, it did you know, have it the feel of a, of a MasterCard movie. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was a very... Uh, yeah, it was it was a very yes. low budget film. <laughs> I've got to cover Absolutely. this budget with my with my credit cards. Absolutely, <laughs> and you know that's always going to take me out of the moment. Um, I understand that it was originally a uh, a stage production. Really? Oh, I didn't yeah, know that. I, I, oh, I forget I, where I saw that. But. No, I do think they they had workshopped it as uh-huh. as yeah. um, as like a stand. I don't know if it was a, not really one woman, but a small yeah. a small cast stage mm-hmm. show. Um, I, I, I got the impression that I was kind of workshopping it to see where it would go. Could and I weren't sure if it was going to be stage or if they were going to yeah. film it. So um, maybe that some of that comes out of out of it. Yeah, so the, 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 there may have been from the start this more this emphasis on the, the, the verbal performance. Right, right. In the way the stage show would. Right. And, and I think that part, um, definitely the, the, the text uh, mm-hmm. of, of the, the film, the screenwriting, was pretty damn good and some of the performances I think Molly Shannon as Emily Dickinson mm-hmm. was great um, and I, I loved really so much oh sorry go ahead well I really liked her casting I think she had that um, both because she is a comedic actress she mm-hmm. you know, came from Saturday Night Live she's done a lot of comedic roles um, she was in that um, what was the Little Hours uh, about a year ago mm-hmm. just 2017 which is Loosely based on the Decameron, it's about a bunch of mm-hmm. nuns. It was super hilariously broadly funny, <laughs> um, but she she has um, a dry. She can do a dry humor and a, and a reserved humor very well, and 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 things like the the asides to the to mm-hmm. the audience and, and her and, facial expressions. Yeah, her facial expressions are amazing. Uh, and yet she can she can do the serious as well. So mm-hmm. she's she's really she's got a lot more range than you'd think. Really, just mm-hmm. given the name, like oh, someone was out of And that's especially looking at her resume. You know, the uh-huh. rest of her work is primarily just in straight comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was pretty much genius casting. Yes, right because there. bringing the comedic um, overlay. Yeah, I mean, somebody else could have taken the same lines and not given it that same sense. Definitely. And and one of the things that you know I just really loved about this was the comedy of it, because it's the, the basic premise of the film, and and this is for our listeners yes. to synopsize. The basic premise is that we're seeing Emily's life in retrospect through the the myth making of Mabel Todd. Now Mabel Todd uh, was Emily's one of Emily's editors. And she was also her brother Austin's mistress. Her brother Austin, who was married to Susan, who is Emily's lover in the, in the movie. Um, and uh, we'll get on to that part of right. the story. But, but so there's this, this constant progression seeing uh, Todd doing the, the myth-making. She's, yes. she's giving lectures to audiences in connection with the publication of Emily's poems after her death. And deliberately mythologizing Emily's life for various reasons. I, I got it as portrayed. Some of it felt like jealousy, because Todd had her own poetic aspirations, mm-hmm. and some of it felt like this need to control the story, to, to control the story of the of the the Dickinsons around here, both Emily and Austin, 
um, in ways that she that Todd couldn't control in her own life because she was the mistress. Well, and and that um, there's a great line that's one of my favorite lines that. Um, so Todd is talking to Austin at one point, saying, "Well, maybe I could publish our love letters oh, yes. uh, and and, uh, and make a book out of that." And he says, "Oh no, that we, we you shouldn't do that. That's that's silly. That's too too personal." Blah blah blah. And and you know clearly she's she's thinking, oh, "But I could be an author myself." Yes. And and, and he says. Um, Oh yes, dear. You should have some creative outlet too. Why don't you paint crockery? <laughs> and and it points to something that the, the the director mentioned about you know the unreliable narrator of Mabel Todd um, that she too you know she's not a simple villain but she is looking for you know she was a savvy woman doing what she thought this is the director's words mm-hmm. doing what she thought was necessary for the satisfaction of her own need for creative expression even if the poetry belonged to someone else. And that line about, oh dear, you should just paint crockery. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the truth of the time is that, you know, women as writers, as authors of their own, not, not a going concern, not a, yeah. not a vital option and, and there's for an so under, many people. There's an underlay of that in, in how Emily's work is received. And there's this tension between uh, Mabel Todd mythologizing that, oh, Emily didn't want to be published yes. in her own lifetime and, and all this. And and then you, you cut over to showing Emily, sending her, her poetry out to publisher after publisher and being told, it's like, you're not quite ready yet, dear. Right. Maybe if you made it rhyme. Right. Or wrote some of <laughs> yeah. the little trite stuff that was was okay for women to write at the time. Like, just, you know, yes. just write a little something sweet and mm-hmm. simple that rhymes. That, that's and, fine. And, Nothing and, challenging. Yeah, and not taking women as as artists, as yes. authors, seriously. Exactly. And so you see that from both sides. It makes uh, Mabel you know, much more sympathetic, mm-hmm. even as you despise her. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, she's not a one-note character, uh-huh. um, which it's easy to, when you when you realize that the... The main crux of the story is that um, uh, there's a, it's based on this all this correspondence um, between Emily and Susan, her her sister-in-law, that Mabel Todd literally erased, like from the paper, like physically erased. Their relationship was physically erased from the record. <laughs> like we just, and it was rediscovered and published by um, this scholar in in the uh, like 1989. Yeah. Or, 1998, sorry. I'm bad with numbers. Um, and so, you know, you could think of Mabel Todd as just, oh, that's a horrible person. Oh, she just yeah. erased, oh, maybe she hates, you know, women who had a, a relationships with other women. And No, she was just, you know, maybe she did. But the real thing is that she was building herself up. She was trying to have a career and a, a profit and what mm-hmm. have you for herself. I mean, she's looking out for number yeah. one because... What else could a woman do at the time? It's, yeah, it's kind of it's a sorry statement on the state mm. of affairs for everybody. And patriarchy hurts everybody, queer yes. or not. It just fucks with all women. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, and and in this film, you know, there's this this tension between how much the film is showing a historic truth and how much it's showing one reading of history because we don't necessarily know Todd's motivations. You know, there, there is one strain of thought that says, 
she was sincerely and genuinely trying to protect the reputation of her sister-in-law. That's um, an interesting um, aside on it that the one of the books that first got me into seriously researching queer women's history was Lillian Fatterman Surpassing the Love right. of Men. And in that book, Fatterman mentions that one of the things that got her into re- researching it was looking at the life of Emily Dickinson. Really? And how in, in Dickinson's own work and in these letters, yeah. uh, there is this, this effusive, very romantic, mm-hmm. definitely erotic right. uh, sentiments directed towards women. Mm-hmm. And then by the time her poetry is and her letters are being published, right. there's this, this contraction, this yeah. withdrawing, this suppressing, this, this you know, erasing mm-hmm. of not just the the relationship the, not just the romantic aspect of the relationship right. with Susan but the eroticism itself right. and Dickinson uh, sorry Fodderman was trying yeah. to make sense of this it's yeah. like how within the space of one woman's lifetime could you go from being completely open yeah. about this to being you know so very um, repressed about it mm-hmm. um, and I disagree a lot with Fodderman's approach <laughs> to the topic sure but it, it definitely is one of those turning points, and there have been multiple turning points like that in history, where we went from a society where women were, where where it was normal for women to express sentimental romantic uh, expressions towards each other in public without being self-conscious about it at all. Uh, and then, and then the servant comes into the garden and says, "Love means sex, and sex is evil." Um, and suddenly, you're reading Freud, and uh, you know you, yeah. we know where that went. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the things this movie is trying to redeem: is is saying not only was Emily's poetry definitely romantic and erotic. But so was her life. Right. She was not this repressed recluse in a white dress <laughs> that, um, okay, she probably had issues. Yeah. But that, but that that aspect of her life is neither something to be hidden nor something that was unusual or abnormal. Right. I'll take issue with the white dress too. <laughs> that is one thing that, you know, for all of this movie's, you know, myth busting, it does go full on with the white dress. And and that's, you know, she had a white dress mm-hmm. and, and it survived. Mm-hmm. And so that fed into the myth of the Belle of Amherst and the, the, woman the recluse and the woman in white. Um, and it's one, one white dress that survived from the 1870s to the very end, towards the end of her life. And it was in various museums, um, from and then finally, um, it's in the museum that's her house mm-hmm. um, since around the 1940s. Lots of women wore white at the time. Yeah, it was common. It was, it was a fashionable. Um, you know, it wasn't <laughs> like she wore white and that was like, ooh, she's weird. You know, no, <laughs> women wore white, and it's not like she only wore white. There are, you know, there were other dresses of hers that survived as well. <laughs> it's not a thing. So yeah. yeah. So, so this movie so, don't totally went full hog with that one. Like, come on now. If you're gonna myth, if you're gonna bust myths, let's bust them all. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one of the other things that I liked about this movie was the nonlinearity, yeah. the way that it it 
not only jump back and forth from you know after Emily's death with with Todd giving the lectures mm-hmm. and then cutting back to the real story of of the content, but just the ways in which it jumped back and forth mm-hmm. and it kept cycling through her life and yet eventually coming full circle at the end to her death and the you know the the very sweet love uh, sweetest the wrong word for this <laughs> the very poignant scene where. Um, where Susan was asked to wash and lay out her body, um, which was you know a very personal, intimate thing that was usually done by the closest female family member, and and then the way that that scene gets put up on a split screen with the scene of Mabel Todd literally erasing Susan's name from the correspondence, right. and so so juxtaposing that 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 proof of intimacy, and that's a that's yeah. a. a an episode that nobody disputes, you know, that that's part of the historic record is is that, that Susan was the one who, who washed her body after death. Um, and, and so it, it just made this wonderful juxtaposition, yeah. which of course was very deliberate. But. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, that's, yeah, again, very historically accurate in that, that moment. So let's talk about the Yellow Rose of Texas. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I just, yeah, I busted out laughing because that was so funny. I mean... I, I like when um, a movie about an artist or a poet or uh, try tries to bring that art to life. I know it can be so hokey and it's overdone, um, but I don't care because <laughs> I like the attempt. Uh-huh. Um, and yes, the attempts can be hokey and goofy, and a lot of times it's just you know you put the the text on the screen. This film does that. Um, but the actual trying to act out some metaphors, yeah, I, I just something about me loves that. It's the theatricality, but it's mm-hmm. also it's it's how your mind works when you read poetry or even when you look at art. You think this is a thing. This is actually something happening there. There's there you know metaphors and allegories exist for reasons. They they're supposed to create pictures in your head, and to see that attempted mm-hmm. on screen is just so interesting I want to again not every attempt succeeds and you know some of them were better in this film than others um the yellow rose of Texas as because I could not stop for death he kindly stopped for me you know I mean I'm gonna get yeah, so the, the, it was hilarious and and so wrong but it was that's that way it right um and also it was done to cover up uh sounds of uh, well, or yes. it was not intentionally, but it was covering up the sounds of sex in the upstairs. Yeah. <laughs> so that was like even more hilariously wrong and bad. So, and so to set this up for the listeners yes. who may not have seen the movie yet. <laughs> so the scenario is this. Mabel Todd is trying to get a glimpse of Emily, who is this famous recluse. Um, and she offers to come over and play piano for her. Well, well, the, you know, she comes over. The housekeeper says, well, there's the piano. Emily's upstairs. She'll be listening. And Emily um, really just doesn't want to see her. It's yes. not like she's a recluse. She, she, she's fine. Because Emily, in, in this film, Emily knows that her brother is fucking Mabel Todd, and, and she just doesn't want to deal. Yeah. Uh, and, and the housekeeper, you know, lays out the music for Mabel to play, and then slips in sheet music of the Yellow Rose of Texas. <laughs> and the, the joke here, which, you know, all the Dickinson aficionados, you know, know by heart, is that an awful lot of the metrics of Emily Dickinson's poetry have that particular 
medical scheme that scans to the Yellow Rose of Texas and a lot of other similar pieces. So, so you see Mabel Todd sit down to play the piano and she starts playing the Yellow Rose of Texas. And then you hear this very somber, meaningful poem, because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me, except it is to that song. Yeah. And, oh. and, and it, you just have to laugh because yeah. it's like, oh my God, it's the metaphor instantiated. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's hilarious. Um, admittedly, you know, the screening I was at, there were some people who just, they didn't get it. I mean, yeah. they didn't know the poem or just, they just didn't understand. Why is this happening? Which is fine. Um, it was it, it was a movie that rewarded being part of the in joke. It actually did, yeah, it really <laughs> did. It helped if you knew some of the poetry. <laughs> um, you didn't necessarily have to know her life story because, mm-hmm. again, this is telling you something that you probably don't know about her life story. Yeah. Um, but it helps if you know some of the poetry because. <laughs> yeah. You will appreciate that more, um, like the, the the gardening scene and mm-hmm. the poetry there was just so beautiful. That was really beautiful. And these, you already mentioned the the um, the, 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 the death the, scene, the, the, yeah. death scene, and that was and, and the, the other amusing one. And it's like you know gallows humor type of yeah. amusing. Um, so Mabel Todd's husband evidently was institutionalized for a mental breakdown, and they introduces us to a throwaway scene and he is quoting one of Emily's poems and I forget which one it was I didn't note that down but it was it was something about you know that, that fit with the sight of him being hauled away um, in a straitjacket um, and it was it was funny and sad yeah. and yeah. absurd exactly <laughs> exactly um, I was going to say that something I mentioned in my Frogflix review is that those uh, performed poems reminded me a bit of Frida, the film with um, mm. Selma Hayek, where they recreated the, po- the, the some of her some of her paintings. Some of yeah. her paintings came to life, uh-huh. and it's that same kind of weird, good kind of cool. Like when you, it's like because her her paintings are very lifelike, and you mm-hmm. see them. You know, you see her dressed as a thing coming out yeah. of the frame. And that's what there was this. I don't remember what the poem it is now, in uh, of in Emily Dickinson's. But that's the. They're in the. There's like a river scene. Oh yeah, there. That was the very dreamlike episode yeah, the very where dreamlike. the people are wading in the yes. river, and and yeah, and there was poems. Yeah, and, and, and it was very, very strange surreal. and surreal. But it came at a good moment where you're like, all right. I think we need that here. <laughs> that was some good editing. That's the spot where you need that. Um, so again, I really appreciate those. I know those are not everyone's cup of tea, but you know, I think that's where some of the the tonal shifts sometimes worked, and I think maybe didn't won't work for everybody mm-hmm. uh, because when it goes from the really funny to the really kind of surreal. Um, and then there are some moments that are a little flat. I was, oh, one moment that I thought was really funny, though. Oh, the cat. The cat. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, so Emily Dickinson's sister, Lavinia, has a cat. And they are sitting around in the parlor. Lavinia is petting her cat, which is obviously a stuffed toy. Fake. Totally fake cat. And it's going meow, meow, meow. Old as time. she pets it. Um, and Emily... and it's Who's the third? So I don't think it's Susan. But uh, it's it's um picture. Who is the this aunt? Maybe it's um. Where is it, Susan? Oh no, it's not. 
No, it's Susan oh, and, yeah. okay. and her sister, uh, and um, Emily. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and there's this thing, and, and Lavinia is depicted as being a bit simple. Yes. Um, and, 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 oh, and, and the line is, the, the cat comes into it because, uh, later, because, yeah. again, Mabel Todd is still trying to meet Emily. And 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 uh, Austin, uh, their their brother, right. is begging Emily. It's like, won't you just like just just meet her, say hello, and and Lavinia says, well, my cat's named Emily. We could introduce her to the cat, yes. and then she say she's met Emily, and it's like, that is just so bizarre. Exactly. <laughs> um, so you know, it it throws in these little bits that, sure, why not? Yes. Yeah. Why not? And and the thing you said about, you know, you don't have to be familiar with Emily Dickinson's life. I think that it would be very incoherent if you didn't know the basic outlines of her life because of the nonlinearity. I think if you know the myth, mm -hmm. that's useful. Yeah. Um, the, the, you know, crazy reclusive mm -hmm. poet, um, nothing published during her lifetime. If you know that much... Okay. I think that helps. The non-linearity, I can't say that word. <laughs> um, we're just going to let it go. Uh, I mean, films do that. Yeah. So, you know, you're either going to go with it or you're not. Yeah. Um, but I don't, because this is introducing things that m most people, you know, like, I know a lot of Dickinson. Mm. I didn't know this about her until I started looking at the film. And I, so I heard about the film and I'm like, what? <laughs> cool. We know something new about this has been new research. We know something new about Emily Dickinson. Awesome! I want to see this film now. <laughs> um, we're gonna go see this. Come on, let's go. Um, so you know, I, so I went with Kendra, one of the other writers on Fry Flicks, and she knew basically that about Emily Dickinson, and she just was like, "That was hilarious. Is that real?" <laughs> well, and this, well, as far as we know, yeah, apparently that was real. <laughs> but I, I think you know. As a as a semi-serious historian, if I may call myself that, you know, I came out of it thinking it's like, okay, this is good myth busting, but it's not good history. Yeah. Because it sort of it does it does the speculation in the other direction. It's like sure. we don't know what Emily's internal life was. Sure. Um, you know, we don't know whether they fucked or not. Right. Uh, for me, it doesn't matter. Right. Because, you know, I don't, I, you know, I come to this without that, that early 20th century judgment that says physicality would ruin the purity of their beautiful <laughs> romantic friendship. Um, but, but to the other point though is we will, we almost never know um, what they really thought mm -hmm. um, when it comes to most historical figures. Um, it's so rare, I mean, that yeah, we have. Yeah, Anne Lister is right. like one of the very rare exceptions. Precisely. Um, we we have we have letters, um, and this is you know based on s some letters, um, and and so we have we we, we don't know the deep the you know, again romance sex what depth of what goes to what we we don't know we just unless you are Ann Lister and even then she wrote it in code you mm -hmm. know so and she wasn't always a reliable narrator even when of she was not. Well, no, nobody, yes. if you're writing in your diary, you are not a reliable narrator because <laughs> you're yes. writing for yourself. Yes, exactly. So, you know, that's not 
reliable either. You need you know a couple of corroborating sources. <laughs> so, um, so there's always some level of uh, question mark and and supposition, and you know we just have to go with it as much as we can. Yeah. Um, I don't mind that. I think it's I think it's fair considering, mm-hmm. you know, the passion in the letters and the long-term relationship yes. there was and the proximity. It's not like they, you know, lived on opposite sides of the yeah, country. They lived, they, they they lived with the girl next door. Yeah, they were literally next door and they wrote to each other for 30 some odd years and with this depth of passion and yeah, so it's just, just to say that they to say that they didn't act on it in some physical way is beside the point. It is it, it's you know it's a it's a per, certainly reasonable plot for a movie. <laughs> yeah, you know yes. it's it's not outside the realm of, of possibility, and so I'm going to give it to them because <laughs> <laughs> I mean you can't say they didn't, you can't say they did. It's it's. It is what it is. It's reasonable enough to, to write a movie about. So I think we, we're, we're both giving this a definite thumbs up. Yeah, yeah. I think it's definitely worth watching. Um, again, with the qualifications that it is low budget, costumes suck. It's definitely art film. It's an art film. <laughs> um, but I think, it's, it's I think that's going to be inevitable yes. with a subject like this. Totally. But it's it's definitely fun, and it's a, def- it's a new look at, you know, a subject... Probably most people don't know much about, so so or we only know one thing about. Yeah, so we we were t- comparing notes on a previous Emily Dickinson film uh, that we apparently have very different opinions on. <laughs> so this is a Quiet Passion, and it came out um, in 2017, or at least that's when yes, I watched it. That's when it came out, and I went to see that one on a whim because uh, I. The traffic was awful, and I decided to see a movie in downtown Berkeley before driving home. And I hated it. It was so dreary. I'm going to read the conclusion of my review on it. Um, well, uh, uh, the conclusion, prose. Excerpts from Dickinson's poetry are used to good effect in communicating mood and setting. The costuming looks pretty solid. You're going to have other, other uh, <laughs> added comments on that. Although there were a few outfits that looked badly fitted in the upper torso. Cynthia Nixon does an excellent job of inhabiting the role of Emily Dickinson as depicted in this script. Cons. The movie makes you wonder why everyone in the 19th century didn't just take to their beds and embrace oblivion in order to get all this dreary business of existence out of the way and move on to salvation. This is the most depressing movie I've seen in a long time, and that includes Lost and Delirious, which is so evil I think no one should ever watch it again. (laughs) So that was my conclusion, but you have a different take. Um, Yeah, a bit more moderate, I'd say. (laughs) I mean, it wasn't like the favorite thing I ever watched in the world, but um, I I believe I started mine with um, a title like a quiet passion and a topic such as Emily Dickinson, audiences should know that this biopic is not going to be full of action, sex, or even much romance. What drama comes is from seeing how the few yet piercing events of this 19th century recluse's life created an artistic miasma that resulted in her poetry. I was feeling <laughs> I had a feeling of that day. Yeah, you were saying that it, it, it um, sort of touched your goth soul. It basically. Director-writer Terrence Davies uses lighting, angles, and dialogue as precise and cutting as Dickinson's own poetry to create believable moods and influences for an artistic life. And of course, he of course he, and intercuts Cynthia Nixon, who plays Dickinson, speaking with the, po- the speaking the poetry intercuts with Cynthia Nixon, speaking the poetry at appropriate scenes. Mm-hmm. So. Um, 
Yeah, it's like a poetic artsy thing, and it's and it's slow. Um, oh yes, also this film is not for everyone. If you <laughs> if you aren't already a fan, maybe I read your review already. Uh. If you aren't already a fan of Emily Dickinson, this may seem too slow and moody, and you better might be better off just picking up a book of her poems and seeing if any of them stick. Yeah. So it was very atmospheric. I will get yes. that. And that was what I was trying to say. It's atmospheric. Um, I love Cynthia Nixon's performance. I thought she was um, excellent. Um, I liked how snarky she was. Mm-hmm. She was um, kind of. She had these funny barbs, and she was kind of. She was witty and um, a little mean at mm. times. Um, and she wasn't the, the you know, nicey, mm-hmm. little shy, withering thing that. Um, <laughs> Kind of the the, the 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 nice Victorian woman. No, she wasn't. <laughs> and um, and the costumes were decent. Uh, it is, by the way, though, eighteen forties to eighteen sixties is uh, as we have often said on frock flicks, frock flicks, prime time of the death of fashion. <laughs> um, so they're boring, and but they did them fine. Uh, they there was a thing that the I think the costume designer, the director said about. Um, was, no, as the director said about uh, people were dirty, they smelled, and their lives were anything about anything but prettiest, prettiness. Um, uh, so, in this film, only the father has a stiff collar. All the other characters have floppy ones because they would have sweat through them. And so he wanted kind of a lived-in mm-hmm. look, mm-hmm. which fine, whatever. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. and and it, it happens. It really well. So in some ways, a quiet passion lived the the mythologizing yeah. it, you know the the preoccupation with mortality yeah. um it really dwelt a lot on the physical hardships of yeah, life right. in the 19th century yeah. and and uh, um Emily's mother's lingering chronic Definitely. illness it really went into her family life um, with her mother and her father, her stern, mm-hmm. taciturn father, the whole her bickering, her religious bickering yes. between yes. her family members which I mean that's that was true. That was mm-hmm. important, and I think that's you know that's the side of her life that is went into her poetry as much because she's so much of her poetry the, the preoccupation with death, uh-huh. which yes is why I love her poems. I am a goth. <laughs> it happens, um, but that comes out of her religious questioning and and battles with the religion she was given from her mm-hmm. father and her struggle with that and her questioning of that and what does it mean and what is what is death and um, all of that that's going around and she's working and, and, through and that in her poetry. And that's not just her. I mean, oh, yeah, the, no. the, the entire of tenor of the times of I mean, course. Victorian preoccupation with mortality right. and death is legendary. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's not a uniquely Dickinson no. thing. No, but the way she expressed it uh, in her poems yes. was, was her unique way. Um, because she wasn't doing it um, well. First off, she was a woman doing it, uh-huh. and she was doing it in a, a unique meter and rhyme and, 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 and method. And she was questioning. She yeah, was she very was, contemplative, not in a necessarily morbid way, yeah. but but it, what does this all mean? Yeah, yeah. And really questioning, really you know, saying, uh, you know, the the prescribed religion isn't. It's there, it means something, but maybe it's not exactly going down that exact way. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's, 
she's a lot I mean she's by no means she's not an atheist she definitely was very much Christian but it was she was kind of questioning the dogma uh, yeah I, I, I saw something in one of her biographies about how you know one of these traveling revival shows had come through and she tried on you know the whole you know you know I am saved Jesus yeah. thing and it didn't stick yeah, yeah. And, and at some point later maybe it's in one of her poems it's something about you know uh, some people you know pray in church and, and yeah. I pray you know in my garden or something yeah. like that yeah she I forget she the exact a, line but yeah I mean she probably would have had more in common with the, the transcendentalists mm-hmm. um, if she you know got out and or if they'd come <laughs> near her I mean that was I can't remember. I can't remember my east coast geography because let's see Amherst, Amherst Massachusetts, Massachusetts. Where was um, Ralph Waldo? Not Emerson. Well, well anyway, yeah, Emerson actually shows up in in Wild Nights with Emily. Was that Emerson there? Or was that yeah, the... Ralph Waldo Emerson was. He, he's no. the mumbler. Oh, oh, he was the mumbler. Yes. I was so, only thinking of the 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 um, the publisher. Who yeah, is, Higginson. Higginson, who is played by a guy who shows up in Drunk History all the time. <laughs> oh no, sorry, no, another period. He shows up in Drunk History, but he's he's in, a, in another period. He plays Hamish the gardener. Uh. Um, yeah, he was he was quite a character. <laughs> yeah, and so so Higginson is is the publisher who published Mabel Todd's edition of Dickinson's poetry. And then there's a huge there's a scene where she just where Dickinson harangues him um, for like well yeah. there's like essentially there's a clock going around and she's just questioning and saying just everything and it's it's amazing it's a, it's a great scene because she is just has this and like, he, he basically walks away saying that woman exhausts me yes <laughs> and, it, and it, it's it's great it's like um it's very much the antithesis to the idea of dickinson didn't want anything published or mm-hmm. didn't have any you know literary opinions during her life she just sit there and <laughs> scribbled and tucked her poems away <laughs> none of that none of that nonsense yeah. So it it you know the two of them together make make an interesting angle. Yeah. You know, it's not just the myth and the demythologizing, right. but it's it it's the sort of very serious somber take. Yeah. And then the 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 deflation, the, the poking fun, right. the the not taking seriously. Yeah. Um, and I think together um, they they do they do make a better whole together than each on their own. Yeah. I mean. I think that's what's that's what I love is when there are very different biographical films because you know when we get certain characters that are made in films that are it's always the same you know yeah. Elizabeth or or, or mm. Anne Boleyn I mean those are all the same those yeah just, they they become a a, just, a mirror for the for the directors vision you know rather than themselves and they're not telling because there are like these two films in particular are telling different parts of that same person's mm-hmm. story and they fit together very mm-hmm. in an interesting way not like perfect they're not like perfect but they tell different parts that are perfectly valid parts one kind of they each ignore different parts yeah but they're also telling parts that happened mm-hmm. and that's cool because you learn different things and you see the director's different take on different things um, it's much like reading different biographies uh, yeah. when you're actually getting more of the historical side, but even just seeing it on film, mm-hmm. seeing a different take. I was almost tempted to go see if I could dredge up a copy of The Bell of Amherst. I have tried to watch that um, because there's a really shitty version, or at least there was, on Amazon, um, and it was just such a bad... 
Because uh, that's like ripped. it's from the seventies. I thought it was like earlier than that. It might be. Maybe that's why I, it was such a bad version that I couldn't watch. I just <laughs> couldn't watch much of it. It was just so. And, and bad. it was, as they say, very much of its time in terms of the movie. Yeah, I was just. I remember the quality was so bad of the oh. the, the stream. You know, because Amazon when they. Um, they're probably streaming an old VCR or something. <laughs> Pretty much. It was like that. And I couldn't, it was, I just couldn't try. Mm. So, I, you know. Uh, I, 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 know I, I could easily like imagine it, it, what it was like, but. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I I just couldn't, I couldn't take. Yeah. Five, well, that, so, so I, I did not yeah. subject you to that. that yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think these two, you know, they're definitely. They definitely tell some, some you know, certainly valid points. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one more recent, one more up on the scholarship, sure, certainly. And and each with their own, you know, uh, well, the Wild Nights with Emily is definitely, I, definitely I would say it has an agenda. Yes. I don't know that I would say A Quiet Passion had an agenda. It definitely had an opinion. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it does that thing where it purports to be the, the rational, um, <laughs> true version, which is itself an agenda, but not in the same way. <laughs> of course, yeah. I, I mean, uh, Quiet Passion was trying to be the, the standard, mm-hmm. standard, standard biopic. biopic. Yeah. And, you know, one of those hadn't been done about Emily Dickinson. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was about time she got at least that due. Yes. Uh, and, and for such a, a, a seminal figure in American poetry... Hmm. To not have anything except for one, and I think Bell of Amherst was like an hour-long hmm. TV movie. So to have a, a you know relatively big bigger budget um, and well-known director do the full full-screen hmm. treatment, that was something. But I would definitely encourage people with any interest in. In Emily Dickinson, in poetry, in feminism, in the Victorian Romantic Friendship Movement, uh, any of those, not people who are interested in really well-researched costume plays, yeah. uh, but to definitely see uh, Wild Nights with Emily and go into it ready to laugh. Yeah, and it's supposed to be on streaming services sometime this summer. Yeah, it's still making the, the art yeah. house circuit right now, and it, it did the festival circuit last year, I guess. Yeah. But it should be ready for general distribution pretty soon now, and uh, go see it. Yeah. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app and consider supporting our Patreon. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves and immortality. We slowly drove, he knew no haste, and I had put away my labor and my leisure too for his civility. 
We passed the school where children strove at recess in the ring. We passed the fields of gazing grain. We passed the setting sun. Or rather, he passed us, the dews grew quivering and chill. For only gossamer, my gown, my tippet, only tool. We paused before a house that seemed a swelling of the ground. The roof was scarcely visible, the cornice in the ground. Since then, to centuries, and yet feels shorter than the day, I first surmised the horses' heads were toward eternity.